invite you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy this morning, 1 Timothy 3, especially verses 14 and 15, and I want to offer something just by way of devotional thought before I even pray and preach. I've never did a, done a devotion before, a sermon before, but I'm trying to figure out where to fit this thing in, and I think this is where it goes. It goes as a devotion before the sermon, because it's going to interrupt the flow of thought a little bit later on. So you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Uh, in the Red Bibles, it's 992. If you want to follow along in a red Bible, I'm going to read verses 14 and 15, make a comment and pray and and preach. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Did you ever notice that the reason we have the letter that we've been studying for half a year now, this letter, the reason we have it is because Paul anticipated a delay in travel. Verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. How many times have you been held up, wind up waiting around for what you believe God's will to be in your life? You are in a traffic jam, or the power goes out at home, or you're sitting in an airport, or you're laying in a hospital bed. Maybe you're in between schools or jobs and relationships, and you're thinking, Lord, let's just get this show on the road. How many times are you wondering, when is God's plan going to begin to unfold here? Paul never thought that way. Even his delays were the unfolding of God's gracious designs in his life. Don't forget that. In God's great providence, Paul's anticipated delay is our gain. His delay is the reason, or even his anticipation of delay, is the reason we have this letter to begin with. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, you are always working. And we thank you for that because Many of us ceased to work and just went horizontal for six, seven, eight hours or more last night. You don't slumber or sleep. You are always working even when we are appropriately resting. And when we are waiting, not just resting, when we are awake and waiting, you are working. We marvel at that, Lord. We thank you for this letter of 1 Timothy that we've had the privilege to study over these months. And I ask, Father, that this would not be time wasted either. That you would be working right now. That you would work in spite of me and in spite of us. I pray that you would work things that I don't anticipate. I pray that blessing could come from our time in the Word this morning. Lord, only you can do that through the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you indeed that you are here, Holy Spirit. So come And move about this room. Draw us to this text. Help us to get in step with the thinking of 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. And change our church from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So last week, a rather detailed discussion about the identity of deacons in the local church, if you were here for that. And it left us hanging on point three, which I'd like, that's exactly where I want to pick up this morning, is the point that I didn't have a chance to open up in verse 13. So we'll actually begin in 1 Timothy 3, 
uh, verse 13, page 992 in those red Bibles. Um, but before I begin the, the exposition of that verse, I, I want to round up on one area related to uh, the sermon last week and discussions, subsequent discussions about the topic of deacons in the local church that have been happening uh, in our church. First thing I need to do is actually make a retraction. And this is not fun to do as a pastor. I can count them on one hand how many times I've had to say, I was really wrong about something uh, from the pulpit and I need to, I need to mention something. Uh, last week I told you that we had consensus among our elders on the topic of deacons. Uh, particularly regarding whether or not a a woman could serve as a deacon in this church. And that is consensus that we did not have. Uh, Two weeks ago, I walked out of the meeting sincerely thinking that we did, enough to say it publicly. Um, And the guys kindly informed me through email and personal conversation that, in fact, we did not have the the consensus that I initially thought we had. And that needs to be be said, because if there is not consensus at the highest level of leadership— to, to move forward with any sort of plan of change is, is futile. And so as we continue to dialogue, uh, you need to know that there is not consensus. Therefore, uh, the members of our church need to know that no matter what changes we end up making to our bylaws in the days ahead, and we anticipate there will be bylaw changes at the, uh, the issue of executive board, our equivalent of deacons in this church, uh, just know that it is very unlikely that any of those changes will be related to the gender issue at all. Um, just to say, we do not have consensus about, about a change that needs to be made. Uh, another way to say it is that there is substantial consensus that no change should be made. That's the positive way to say it. And so just know that that's the way that we're, we're proceeding forward at this point uh, in spite of a, maybe a couple of changes here and there that uh, we'll see come out in the days ahead. All right, let's go to last week's final point. We are talking about deacons. And the point was this, that given their crucial role in the life of the local church, deacons must, and the blanks are already filled in for you, keep the grand incentives for faithful diaconal service in view. Given their crucial role in the life of a local church, deacons must keep the grand incentives for faithful diaconal service in view. Look with me, if you will, at verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope you see two incentives there for serving as a deacon, two grand incentives. I don't even like the word grand, but it just seems like a decent word for this. Big time incentives, verse 13. Two incentives, one condition. We'll begin with the condition. Notice there's a a stipulation there. Those who serve well as deacons. Let's not forget that. It's not enough to simply serve as a deacon. Service can be rendered lots of ways. Isn't that true? We can offer grudging service. We can offer lazy service. We can offer half-hearted service. We can offer proud service. None of these are commendable when it comes to serving in the local church. But those who serve well, those who serve gladly, humbly, conscientiously, lovingly as deacons, ah, these folks are the ones who have a great incentive in their work. And there's two encouragements there in verse 13. First, we read, those who serve well as deacons gain good standing for themselves. The word in verse 13 for standing can refer to a, literally, a step or a threshold 
used figuratively, as I think it is here, it has the idea of sort of grade or rank. In the ancient world, you'd actually uh, see discussions about uh, armies or uh, military language to this effect, a soldier ascending within the ranks of the military. So taken in this sense, some thought that Paul may be saying that those who serve well as deacons may well graduate one day to the chief office or the senior office of elder in the local church. That practice might have some wisdom to it, but it's also possible that Paul is just saying something a little bit more broader and a little bit more basic with his intent here in verse 13. It may be that those who serve as deacons are in the process of gaining solid standing, or if you like, a good reputation for themselves within the life of the local church. That's probably more likely. We all know how this works. I think we all appreciate people like this, people who keep their head down and do their work without complaining, modeling a servant heart. Those who don't call a lot of attention to themselves but get the work done, they tend to garner the most respect, and justifiably so. They're good models for us. So those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, a good reputation, in other words. And that's worth a lot. Secondly, those who serve well as deacons also gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So the first incentive for deacon work is standing. The second incentive is increase in confidence. As 21st century Americans, we hear the word confidence, and we're prone to twist that in the wrong direction. Paul is not thinking about self-confidence or self-image. We so quickly short-circuit that and don't follow his flow of thought. Paul's thinking about a different kind of confidence. It's not about our vision of ourselves, but rather our vision of Christ that gets clearer and clearer. The word for confidence here is the wonderful New Testament word, oftentimes translated boldness or openness or courage or candor or freedom even. Confidence. And this confidence is not rooted in oneself, but in one's Savior. And this makes a truckload of sense to me. As one author writes, confidence, not because he's a good deacon, but because as a good deacon, he knows well the meaning of faith in Christ Jesus. When you begin to roll up your sleeves and serve people, in many cases in out-of-the-way ways in this congregation, in costly ways, you begin to understand the preciousness of servanthood. Recall from last week, Jesus came not to be deaconed, he says, but to deacon and to give his life a ransom for many. It's at the heartbeat of what it means to be a deacon, to serve. So those who are serving, those who are taking up the office of deacon are working right at the heart of what Jesus came to do in this world. So given their crucial role in the life of a local church, deacons must keep the grand incentives for faithful diaconal service in view, standing in the church, increasing confidence in Jesus Christ. And those things are worthy. Now let's turn to the other two verses on the docket this morning. 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. I read a portion of this, but I'll read the the section here altogether. 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, 
which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. As we bring our series on the church to a close, let's look at these three driving convictions behind our study of 1 Timothy 1 to 3. Three driving convictions. I find them all in verse 15. First thing I want to highlight, and this may be a change of direction for some who aren't aware of it, but I'll say it publicly now, uh, we are going to bring this series to a close. Uh, not just our study of 1 Timothy 1 to 3, but our study of 1 Timothy as a letter. Um, in six and a half years of preaching here, I've never actually pulled up short of finishing a letter. Um, I don't think that it is uh, necessarily um, you know, a mark of godliness to doggedly make, make your way through a letter, come heck or high water. Um, but as I think about kind of what's going on in my own heart and I think about others in this church, I think we have some good reasons for holding up the study at 1 Timothy 3.16 next week. Um, one is that just as I read my own gauges and the gauges of those that I pastor out in this congregation, it may be, I think, that 1 Timothy fatigue may be setting in, if not completely overtaken some of us. And I love you guys, and I, I love uh, the ministry of the Word in this church. And just know, you know, the plan was not just 1 Timothy. The plan was followed by Titus, followed by 2 Timothy, which I think would mean we'd complete the pastoral epistles just short of the second coming. And if that's the kind of time that we want to spend in these letters, then, then maybe that's what we need to do. But I'm thinking about mercy in this case, and so we've gotten what we came to get out of the pastoral epistles. This is what I wanted to do, to have a discussion about the church and the leadership of the church and the various themes that we've seen. So I think we've done justice to this. So after Easter, a change of pace is around the corner, and I'm looking forward to it. More on that next week. All right, let's look at these three driving convictions behind this, our study of 1 Timothy 1 to 3. If you listened carefully, as I read verse 15, each of these convictions has to do with the nature of the church. Why have we taken six months for three chapters of the Bible? First reason, because the church is the family of God. Because the church is the family of God. Verse 14, into the first half of verse 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Verse 14 is communicating purpose. It's communicating aim or objective. And if I were the kind of person that wrote in my Bible, I'm not, but if I were that kind of person, I would get out a pen and I would start marking verse 14 right now. Do you wonder why Paul wrote 1 Timothy? You wonder why we've labored to understand with clarity such topics as spiritual mentoring or biblical manhood and womanhood or get under the hood and look at the issue of elders from the origin of elders to the character of elders to the relationships of elders to the work of elders and then once again with deacons, the origin of deacons, the character of deacons and so on. Why would that matter so much to us? So that, as Paul says, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That's why. And it's an amazingly practical motivation. So that we may know, so that Timothy may know technically, and teach the church in Ephesus how to behave in the household of God. The church is 
the family of God. Galatians 6.10 calls us the household of faith. And that faith, of course, is not in some vague God, but in a very specific revelation of God, the specific revelation of Jesus, God's Son. Our faith is in the Lord Jesus. Hebrews 3.6 says that Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are of his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Our confidence and our boasting in Jesus. We're of the house if that's where our boasting is. So God is our father. If Christ is our brother by grace through faith. And God cares that that family function a certain way. That's what 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 is all about. It's about functions, about behavior. The reason I think this family image is lost on so many of us is that we are so accustomed to dysfunction in our families, aren't we? We're used to families not working out. And when we take our, what we are satisfied with on the home front and graph that over onto the church, we lower the bar for the church. Now, sometimes healthcare professionals use the phrase dysfunctional to only speak of really thorny type issues in a house, certain types of addiction, where certain kinds of abuse would function as dysfunctional homes. But as you begin to look at the literature on this, as I did recently, dysfunction can also be marked by, by simple things like blaming, uh, by pushing of relational boundary issues, um, by plain old bullying. In other words, most of our families qualify, and sometimes our relationships in the church uh, are reflective of that kind of dysfunction. But it's not supposed to be that way in God's house. Mount Free Church, for example, our expectations for life together are on a higher plane. If you were here uh, two years ago for the series that we did, uh, that where we developed our house rules, we called the series Life Together, and we worked out uh, of the 15 one another's of the New Testament of a vision for living together in our community groups and how we treat one another uh, relationally in this church. When the gospel breaks into your life, when you find your life overhauled, your sins are forgiven, and God begins to pulse through you the grace of Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit, your motivation with reference to other people begins to change. Your relationships begin to change. And so we made a, a corporate statement that, that it hangs in certain places. It's in our office, and it's also on the website, um, that with God's gracious help, we will, for example, love one another with brotherly affection. We will consider others as more significant than ourselves. We will rejoice with those who rejoice. We will weep with those who weep. We will live at peace with one another. When it comes to our mouths in the household of God, as a family of God, we will speak the truth to one another, confess our sins to one another, pray for one another, counsel and encourage one another, even sing to one another, the apostle says. And as it relates to our behavior, we will seek to do good to one another. We will outdo one another by honoring each other. We will show hospitality to one another and wash one another's feet. That's what it means to behave properly in the household of God. A functional family, in other words. So Paul says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The bar is high. We are the family of God. 
The second image for the church today, second reason why we ought to labor to become a healthy fellowship is, is this reason. The church worships the real life God. The church worships the real life God. Notice in verse 15, right after Paul gives Timothy the household image, he gives him another picture right on the heels of that one. The household of God, which is the church of the living God. Two aspects of this image I want to call to our attention. Uh, the first is the fact that, and we breeze right over it, that Paul calls God's people the church. The church. And the frequency with which we use that term and the familiarity with which we throw it around sometimes, sometimes can serve to deaden the reality of what the word actually means. Uh, the first century word underneath this is a compound word that literally means the called out ones. So when we say I'm going to church, I'm saying I am one of the called out ones. Those who have been called out from the world, happily drawn in by the Holy Spirit, made part of one vast assembly across the globe that is peopled by every tribe and language and people and nation. We are the called out ones. That's why we're here this morning. We're the church. And we are called out to worship the real life God, or as Francis Schaeffer said a generation ago, the God who is there. And I believe that's what Paul means when he speaks of the living God, the God who is there, the called out ones of the living God. Now, this is a huge responsibility, so let me just refresh us as to our uh, responsibility in the culture in which we live. Explain to you what I mean. My daughter, Mia Jane, three and a half years old, like many little ones, has a wonderfully wild imagination. It's fascinating to watch her when it comes to playtime. She is superbly creative, whether it's her artwork or her stories or her time playing babies. It's lots of fun to watch her. But even at three and a half, she doesn't live all of her entire day in a world of fiction. Every now and then, she wants to check in and see that certain things are reality. At her age, she is actively seeking to establish what is imaginary and what is real and she's looking for pointers here along the way so when she hears something and she's not sure if it's genuine she'll ask me or whoever she's with she'll say for we a wife <laughs> and when she asks this of course she's saying are you misleading me is this true can i bank on this does this conform to reality we a wife in other words so i'll say like last night hey guys let's have a bonfire tonight and she says, for real life? She's so excited. Now here's the connection. Throughout the pages of the Bible, we find confirmed what we see in the culture all around us. A people awash in the worship of not real life, but dead idols. And they give their whole lives to it. Psalm 115, beginning in verse Four, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them will become like them, all who trust in them. And whether in the pages of the Bible or as we look around, we see it. We see our culture worshiping that which really does not exist as God. 
It doesn't matter whether you're talking about power or status or a house or a job or a $640 million jackpot split three ways. These are not living gods. They're not self-existent. They don't have the power to give life. And none of them, not even mega millions, can save you from the judgment that is to come. But the God of the Bible, on the other hand, is the real life God. And when our culture looks on and sees a gathering of called out ones, whether your family at home or the way that you behave in the neighborhood or what you're doing at work or what we're doing here as a fellowship, we are worshiping a different God, a real life God. And you might be surprised how often people wonder, if not actually say to you, is that the real deal? Especially when they begin to encounter suffering in their lives. Is that for real life? Your God is the living God, isn't he? I mean, everyone worships, but comparatively few people worship the living God. So that's our role in our culture. We have no choice but not to worship. So do unbelievers. The question is, at what altar will we worship? We want to know, as Paul says in verse 15, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Give them a glimpse of what it looks like to worship the real life God. Last reason for our series, and we'll close with this. Six months on three chapters of the Bible, because these chapters are about the church, and the church is entrusted with the truth of God. The truth of God. Paul saves, I believe, his most striking image for last in verse 15. We are the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. The impression could not be more majestic. This is incredible. What Paul's painting here is the image of a massive physical structure in the first century. But what's unique about this structure is that it screams truth. The pillars, as one author observes, not only hold the roof, but thrust it high so that it can be seen clearly even from a distance. The church is a pillar of truth. We ought to be people proclaiming the truth, celebrating the truth, communicating the truth for all to see and to hear. There is an evangelistic edge to what he says about the church being a pillar of truth. The second aspect of the building is that the church is also a buttress of the truth. And from what I can tell here, the buttress speaks of stability and support. So not so much the communication of the gospel, but as Paul says in Philippians, the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This is another facet of the church's relationship with the truth. That's why we ought to be relentless in our pursuit and study of Scripture. It's our calling. It's what we're for. As far as the church goes, we are, we are truth brokers. We deal in truth. This is not first the job of Christian colleges or seminaries or much less Christian bloggers. It's our work. It's our job to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. And again, in the culture in which we live, this is a serious responsibility. We must not ever become casual 
or indifferent toward the truth. And truth be told, to use the image again, that's the reason why I'm serious about the discussion of deacons. And that's why I'm also serious about the consensus that we currently have in this church, that I don't want to wreck any unity that we currently have. But we would not ever want to be indifferent toward the truth, especially the truth that we are convicted of in Scripture. As one Puritan pastor writes, when the church ceases to be the pillar and ground of the truth, we may and ought to forsake her. For our regard to the truth should be greater than our regard to the church. We are no longer obliged to continue in the church than she continues to be the pillar and ground of the truth. Does that make sense? That's very, very helpful. We are no longer obliged to continue our regard for the church if she continues, uh, rather stops her uh, continuation of being a pillar and ground of the truth. How tragic that churches can abandon their very reason for, for being. We are entrusted with the truth of God, for we are a pillar and ground of the truth. So as we bring our series on the church to a close, you see three driving convictions here behind our study of 1 Timothy 1-3. to Church is the family of God. Church worships the real life God. Church is entrusted with the truth of God. And the heartbeat of this truth is what we're going to unfold next week. It's Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And I couldn't have planned this better if I had been planning it, and I wasn't planning it. Here's verse 16 for next week. He, Jesus, he was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. That's where we're going to be on Resurrection Sunday, one week from today. And I invite you to join me then. Right now, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are your family. And you anticipate and expect us to be functional. You have given us grace so that we might be. And so I pray, Father, that our behavior would be pleasing to you in what we agree on and what we disagree on. I pray, Father, that you would be, uh, would truly be the, the, the patriarch of this family and that we all as your children would hear your voice in the scriptures and, and be marching together, listening to the voice of the good shepherd. For we are the family of God. Father, I, I pray that we would be people that don't play around at worship, but that we would glut ourselves on you, that we would give ourselves unremittingly to the worship of you, that we wouldn't play around with the worship of the idols of this culture, and that as we do, as we give ourselves with abandon to the worship of Jesus Christ, that people would stand up and take notice, that they would realize that all of the world's altars are in front of dead idols, but that Jesus is the true God, the living God. And Father, I ask that as we move ahead to next week, as we see the truths that we are entrusted with, and it just is true that some truths are more precious than others, and 
we will look at one of those truths next week, Lord. Would you make us a church? We ask afresh today, make us a gospel-centered church. May we be a church that is pulsing with life because we place Jesus at the center. His life, his suffering and death and burial and resurrection and soon return, that that is the message that we rally around as a church. Oh, risen Christ, I pray that you would come and be present with us this week as we move toward Good Friday and then Easter Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen.